Thank you, Pastor Edgar. Would you take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5? The last couple of weeks we've been looking at Matthew 5, and, and Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and what he has for us fresh and new today. I uh, want us to look at Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verse 17 through 20 tonight. I want to just read these verses before we get started. Follow along with me as I read aloud Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus is speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that just encouraging words tonight? I think when we hear this, we have been taught and accustomed to in the church of, of all the things that it does mean, and it's not that that's not helpful, but I think we could do with a dose of how odd this must have sounded the first time that the original hearers would have heard this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were experts in the law. Unless you can do even more than them, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There must have been a holy cloud of despair that would come over a number of them. But as we dive into that passage of scripture, I want you to allow your mind not just to think about, Lord, what does this mean in my life? But what could it have possibly felt like for the original hearers to hear this? As we continue our series tonight in this message entitled Remix, this series entitled Remix, we're learning that Jesus' take on life is completely opposite of the world around us. For example, if you're trying to change your life, this world will, will tell you if you just change your behavior and keep doing different things long enough, then pretty soon your heart will change. But Jesus says that's backwards. His advice is let God change your heart first and Only when he changes your heart could you sustain any kind of behavior change that he calls you to. That's where we were a couple weeks ago when we looked at the first 12 verses. Looking at the life that God could bless. It starts with a heart that has a right attitude. And when we get our heart in the right place, then we can have a different set of thinking and we can begin to act and, and be the influence and the salt and the light. We saw that in verse 13 through 16. But tonight... In this 17 through 20 section of verses, he begins to lay the foundation for what right kind of behavior could be. Now, in order to build this new take on life, we need the right blueprint to understand what we are building and what it should look like. And the the Bible is to a follower of Jesus, it's, it's a blueprint for us. Just like a builder would have a blueprint to build a building or to build some kind of a con, uh, project or, or some kind of construction thing, when they look at the blueprint, they can see what they're trying to do. And God's Word is that for us. Without it, they're just left to guesswork. In Jesus' day, they didn't have the New Testament. They were living the New Testament. 
But they had portions of the Old Testament. And so when they would talk about the, the law, they weren't just talking about the Ten Commandments. They were talking about uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. They were talking about the prophets. And when they would take in the law, this was a blueprint for them. It was God's blueprint for how he could bless their life if they would live in accordance with it. For centuries, God's people followed the law, followed that blueprint that was given to them. But when Jesus began his teaching in his ministry, he immediately began to challenge some of the common notions about God's law. For example, the law stated that the Sabbath was a day of rest, which no one was to work on that day. So when the experts of the law saw Jesus healing people on the Sabbath, they accused him of working, thus breaking God's law. Much more troubling to them was his authoritative claims, where he even claimed to speak for God. And they just couldn't stand it because he was messing with what they had held so closely to, the blueprint that God had given them. If you live this way, I can bless your life. And they loved the blueprint so much that they were not accepting Jesus. Notice how many times in Matthew chapter 5 and in this sermon alone where Jesus says, You have heard it this way, but I tell you another way. But I say to you this. He does it in verse 21 and verse 27 and verse 31 and 33 and 38 and 43. And if we continue to skim, we'd see all over the place. He says, You've heard it said this, but I tell you this. He is expanding. He is fulfilling the law that had been given to them. That's why Jesus was accused of blasphemy. The charge was what eventually sent him to the cross. They accused him of laying down the law and changing the law. They believed he had no right to have such authority over the law. So let's look at what he's really saying to the people here. What is the facts of this case? Jesus and the law. If you're taking notes, look with me at this section, Jesus and the law, and go back to verse 17 again. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation here to give us a fresh look on this passage. Don't misunderstand why I have come, Jesus said. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to fulfill them. According to Jesus... Far from separating himself from the law, he identifies himself as the clarification of how God's law should be lived out. In other words, he's saying the problem is not with God's blueprint. The problem is with how you are living out God's blueprint. You see, over the course of many generations, there have been a various amount of traditions that were attached to the law. And these traditions that they began to love eventually became as important to them as the law. So it wasn't just what God had commanded, it's how we interpreted what God commanded, it's how we do different things. I think we think of traditions and sometimes we see it as just an old school Pharisee thing, but that would never ever ever happen in our life. I don't know about you, but do you have traditions? Traditions aren't all bad. They're not. I think of traditions, I think of holidays and the things that we would do. I've told you before, those of you who are close to me, you know I love to play games. And I loved hearing that our survivor, VBS, had a great competitive spirit going on in the VBS section. I thought that was great. I can identify with that. I love to play games and, and I love to win at games. Now, we were taught you had to lose graciously and you had to win graciously, but but we had a fun time doing that. And so part of our traditions was always playing a game. There was always a score sheet somewhere of who won how many games of Uno or who won how many games of Pente. That was just something that we did. 
but it began to get off track if we were more excited about the games than we were the people being with those people. I remember my grandmother on my mom's side, Lena McKinney, we called her Nana, and she was known at Christmas gift-giving time that all the grandkids and all of her kids, my aunts and uncles and, and uh, her daughters, when they would get a gift, you would get taped on the back side of that gift quarters and nickels and dimes and pennies. Sometimes you get lucky and it'd be a dollar because your gift was cheaper than everybody else's. And she wanted to make sure everybody knew they were loved exactly the same. So whatever the dollar amount was she set, everyone's going to get that amount. That was a tradition. And it was not a bad tradition, but sometimes as grandkids, we got wise to this. And so we would ask for things that were very inexpensive. Because when you ask for, you know, a new package of pencils, you may get $18 taped to it. And then you could take the money and go do whatever you wanted to with it. And, and it was how we would twist a tradition or how we get more excited about this outcome. And instead of seeing that Nana had the same equal love for us, we began to have a love for the money that she would take to things. It's something that's very, very much a part of our life. I think sometimes we look at this traditions and legalism and things that can come into the church and we label it to one generation. I've shared with some of you before in different settings, legalism and traditions are definitely not in one generation. Some of the most legalistic settings I've ever been in is I was in an assignment and and we were wanting to change the coffee bar to a lemonade bar for the summer. Instead of having all different kinds of flavored coffee, we're just going to have strawberry lemonade and regular lemonade and iced tea because it was hot and we thought that would be a good thing. Oh my goodness. You would think that we just started preaching out of the crayon or some, something heretical like that. Don't mess with the coffee bar. Every generation, every people group, no matter where we are at, we have things that we begin to love how we do it when we obey the law that God has given to us. And the challenge that Jesus is saying here is, hey, listen, I have come not to abolish this law, but to fulfill this law. And make sure you know what it is to be the law, and what your great love of your tradition of how you have upheld the law. You've heard the story many times before. It's an old preacher story of uh, a mom on Easter. She's cooking the Easter ham, and her daughter is there learning how to cook the Easter meal so she can pass it on to the next generation. And the mom chops off the end of the ham and chops off the other end of the ham before she puts it in the oven. And the daughter says, well, Mom, why do you do that? I've noticed you do that every year. And she goes, I don't really know. That's how my mom did it. And she said, let's ask Grandma. And she asked Grandma, and she says, I'm not really sure. That's just what I've always done. And they did a little bit of research and they found out that their great, great grandma didn't have a pan big enough to fit the whole ham in. And so she would chop off the ends of the ham to make it fit. Well, the future generations didn't have the same problem, but they did it the same way over and over again. And they weren't sure why they did it that way. It's those kind of traditions that Jesus is speaking about. He says, make sure you love my law and keep it, but the law of God. Not your interpretation, not your own understanding of it. So when we see Jesus in the law, the first thought here is to see that Jesus, he is the perfect expression of God's law. If you want to know how to live your life according to God's blueprint, look at Jesus and follow his example. If we want to be a people who don't get caught in the the trap of legalism, the fast track out of legalism is to look at Jesus Because Jesus is not legalistic. He doesn't abolish the law. He doesn't go easy on the law. He fulfills the law. He's the perfect expression of God's law. 
He is the model for us. See, that's why when builders are setting up a new neighborhood, they don't just show potential customers who want to buy lots and have a house built, just show them blueprints. He shows them the model house. People need to come into that model house and experience what it would be like to live there, to smell what it could smell like, and to see the dimensions of things there in 3D. Jesus is the model for what the blueprint of the law was all about. The Old Testament being the blueprint, Jesus being that living model of God's law is presented before them. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill those truths in myself. I wrap my flesh around them. I breathe life into them. I make them personal. In the Old Testament, God's law seems unattainable, far from our grasp. But Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law through my very life and example. I have lived a life of perfect obedience. I am pure and holy, and you will find righteousness by trusting in me alone. It's it's Jesus' perfect expression of God's law, and notice that he modeled this deep reverence for God's law. Jesus was not irreverent. He was not condescending to the law. He didn't say, hey, that's the old school stuff. Now I'm here. Everything is out. He says, wait, I've been sent to give you a way to the Father, not to nix the law, but to make it come alive for you. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I assure you, until heaven and earth disappear, even the smallest detail of God's law will remain until its purpose is achieved. We don't take our cues from the world. We don't take our cues from a stream of books or media or movies. If we do, we'll have very little respect for God's law. Very little respect for God's word. Maybe you were taught like me growing up that to have respect for God's word means that you don't put anything on top of the Bible. If I would put my algebra book on top of the Bible, I would hear from it from mom or dad and for sure from grandpa. It would just, that's not, we're going to do that. And that's not a bad practice, but I think that respecting God's law is not just taking the book and letting it hold a place of respect, but I take its teachings and I let it have a high place in my life. Far greater than where I place the book on the shelf or what I do or don't place on top of it is what I do in the priorities of my life. Am I beginning to allow God's word to come to the top of the focus of my life and let it have priority in how I live? So Jesus does a remix on this law. When the world world hears the phrase God's law, they think of endless rules and meaningless traditions and binding regulations And if you only read verse 19, you might draw the conclusion that Jesus offers the same old understanding. But let's look at verse 19. So if you break the smallest commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. The religious leaders listening in on Jesus' teaching loved it when he said this because their take on God's law meant that obeying every little rule and regulation that they were ahead of the game. And their list of rules was very long. But Jesus throws them a curveball in the next verse, in verse 20. Look at it with me. It says, but I warn you, unless you obey God better than the teachers and religious 
teachers of, of religious law and the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven at all. So those who thought they were getting a perfect score sheet because it's all about how close you are to the law, he singles them out and says, you've got to do better than them. That's not what they were expecting. It's definitely not what they wanted to hear. And, and so what is Jesus getting at? Is this just a gloom and doom message that nobody's going to be good enough? How can I reconcile his apparent contradiction between living a life that honors God and yet not being enslaved to God's law? The answer is, is it's in a striking biblical balance that he gives to us. It's, it's a picture that Jesus is giving of a balance beam. And if I was braver, I would have a balance beam that was more than just a couple inches off the ground. But what Jesus is saying is when you are living for God, it's an act of walking in line with His will. And some of us begin to fall on either side. And if I try to walk on the balance beam of obeying God and I lean too far to the grace, I begin to say... I just can't help it. I just can't keep all of God's laws. And you know what? God and I have this great thing going on. I just love sinning. God loves forgiving. We've got a great deal. I just keep sinning, sinning, sinning. He keeps forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. And so we don't even need a balance beam. It's just all about God's grace. And Jesus is saying in this passage, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And some of us, we're in danger and we continue to fall on the side of of cheap grace. And Jesus says, it's not about cheap grace. Listen, I've come to fulfill the law and it is in me that you can fulfill the law. But others, it's not that side of the balance beam that we fall on. We understand, some of us, we say, well, it's not about cheap grace. And so we say, I've got to work harder and do more. And we fall on the side of saying, I want to focus on holiness. But it's not biblical holiness. It becomes a legalistic understanding of holiness. And we say, God, I I get it. Sin is terrible. I'm going to go clean myself up and I'm going to do everything in my own strength and you'll be so proud of me. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to work more, do more, try harder. And and God says, you're going to have to be better than the best of the rule keepers. And so what in the world is Jesus saying? He's saying, hey, I am here to take the law that has been such a struggle and a balance beam But I'm going to give you a balance. And when you keep your eyes fixed on me, only through me as you remain in me and I remain in you, can you fulfill the law through my spirit in you. And Jesus is beginning to give a new way to do life, a different way, a better way. And he says, it's not to let go of the law, but it's to fulfill it in my presence. That's the remix that Jesus gives on the law. So in other words, it could be said this way. Jesus doesn't lower the bar. He raises the bar in verse 19. His death on the cross doesn't give me a license to sin and do whatever I want to. Rather, it frees me from the bondage of sin so I can live a holy life in the power of His indwelling Spirit. The Apostle Paul also had something to say about this when he asked the question in Romans 6, 1 and 2. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in that sin any longer? 
The Apostle John echoes the same idea when he writes in 1 John 3, 9, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. There is to be some kind of transformation. And Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. You've got to remember, the people who heard this originally had not had the advantage that you and I have had of hearing this through a bunch of Sunday school classes and a bunch of different sermons and having it passed down to us through trusted individuals. And we chew on it and we filter it and we hear this. I didn't come to abolish the law but fulfill the law. And we go, oh, I think I know what that means. They're hearing it fresh. And it's right there before them. And Jesus has just said, I want to start with getting your heart right. And once your heart is right, I want you to see that you are my light and my salt. You have influence everywhere. And by the way, it means your obedience is necessary. And if we take it out of context of the sermon, we begin to think that this is about rules or this is about something else. And Jesus says, it's a heart thing first. It's a mission thing second, and then you'll begin to see your life change. When we started, sometimes the world says, if you want to see uh, a change, you just do a different behavior, and you keep doing a different behavior, and pretty soon your heart will change. Jesus says, no, let me give you a new heart. And as you follow me, I will help fulfill the law in you. As you're obedient to my daily, moment-by-moment whispers, you will begin to see a behavior change in your life his grace means so much to us that we don't want to sin to be disobedient to him and his call to holiness means so much to us that we understand that i cannot do it in my own strength and this desire to live in him is not just something that we have to do but we long to do see the pharisees define holiness in terms of an external appearance jesus defines holiness in terms of an internal character remember What I said at the beginning of the talk, that Jesus' remix doesn't work from the outside in, but from the inside out. It's Jesus calling us to say, hey, when you are living in me and you are fixed on me and the John 15 happens, I want to help you see that I am calling you to be faithful to the law and allow my spirit to help you fulfill that law. This is a better way to live life, Jesus says. Jesus doesn't restrict life. He liberates it. And this is not to be this cosmic killjoy or to be this one who is cracking the whip. He's not the lifestyle police coming down to make sure you get every single T crossed and I dotted. He's saying every time I tell you no, Brady, every time I tell you not to do that, it's because if you do it, you're going to hurt yourself or someone else. And he said the same thing for you. Is law... Through the power of the Spirit, when we live it out, we live the best life possible. I was playing phone tag and text tag and Facebook tag with my dad today. One of the challenges of uh, Father's Day for preachers is we are pretty busy on that day, often. And uh, trying to connect to each other usually doesn't happen until at, at night. And as I had sent him a text and sent him a voicemail, and then he would call back and and uh, we're doing this back and forth, I was thinking all afternoon about a post that I wanted to write for my dad, thanking God for him. And I thought about pictures that I could uh, attach to that post of pictures of a younger version of my dad and a much younger version of myself where he's holding me in his arms, and I could thank my father for how he shaped me as a young child. 
and that I found some crazy, silly pictures of me in high school and college, and I could thank my dad for his patience in passing on life lessons in a version of myself. I look back and say, wow, I, I was a piece of work. I'm probably still in, but I can recognize it from that angle. And then I saw pictures of, of my dad and I at, at our wedding and pictures of my dad there when our daughter was born and pictures of my dad at, at just about every ministry assignment that I would take and he was there blessing me. And, and I began to think, I can't think of one picture that would depict what I want to say in thanking him. But it came to my mind that probably the greatest area that I'm indebted to my father is when he paint a picture for me of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It was a picture of what Jesus is talking about to see that he fulfills the law in us with relationship in him. It's this biblical balance between grace and holiness that is not just a blueprint in God's word. It is a model in Jesus Christ. And you and I are called to be a model to someone else around us of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Remember when Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. I can't think of a more sobering challenge for us men on Father's Day. Whether you have children or not, somebody is watching you. For that matter, ladies, somebody is watching you as well. And if we don't get this part right of Jesus' sermon, we'll begin to try to live this passage of Scripture and we'll err on the cheap grace side, we'll err on the legalistic understanding of holiness, but if we begin to see what I embrace, Jesus the model, He is the key to having success in our life. I ask you, what are you passing on about Jesus? Some life application for us as we close tonight. You see, personally knowing Jesus is more important than just knowing about Jesus. When I was reviewing my notes, I read this and I said, duh. Have you ever written something down and you read it and you're like, that's so obvious? Lord, why did you put that on my heart? How could that be helpful? Personally, knowing Jesus is more important than knowing about Jesus. We know this. But maybe we need to take new stock and and begin to take another accounting of what we value and say, for the people in my life, am I just telling them about Jesus? For the people who will listen, am I just trying to get them in scenarios where they can take in information about Jesus? Or am I helping them know Jesus? I challenge you tonight, many of you, like, I'm struggling to find someone that I'm not sure if you don't have this in your life. Maybe there is, but I can't find you if you're in here. Every person I'm looking at, I see vibrant relationship with Jesus. And so some point in your life, you began to see Jesus talk to you about what this means to, to walk with Him and to have relationship with Him. But who is it that by name tonight you could say, I'm intentionally trying to help them know Jesus, not just know about Jesus. An obvious answer is our family, our kids, our parents, our siblings. But I believe that God is calling us to go beyond that. A life application for us is to remind ourselves that it's not my knowledge of Jesus that makes the difference. It's my knowing Jesus and Him knowing me, that relationship that makes the difference. A second thought for us is, Living the spirit of the law is more important than knowing the letter of the law. Now, let's not forget Jesus' words. He didn't say that we should skip chunks of it, that it's not important. He said every little inch of it will be fulfilled. 
But it's that spirit of the law that is far more important than memorizing and knowing the letter of the law. And this is why the Pharisees were constantly frustrated because they put all their eggs in the basket of, I will know every loophole, I will know every rule, I will do everything. Instead of saying, you know what's probably better? I'm going to put all of my eggs in the basket of knowing the one who has the author of the law. I'm going to put my eggs in the basket of getting as close to Jesus, the one who fulfills the law. So that when I get forgetful, when I miss a piece, when I begin to misstep, and if I'm listening to him, he can say, hey, Brady, 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 no, that's wrong. And I begin to be corrected on that balance beam. As the Holy Spirit puts his hands on your torso and he begins to guide you through life, you begin to sense and see that there is a freedom in having the spirit of the law. Way more important than knowing the letter of the law. You begin to fulfill it the way that Jesus has called us to. As we close tonight, I want to invite you to stand with me. You've paid attention so well. Those of you who come on a Father's Day, Sunday evening after VBS, like this is like cream of the crop, die hard crew of Grace Point. And I'm convinced that when Jesus looked at the twelve, he could see ripples, circles of influence. Now with his discernment, (laughs) far greater than anything he's ever imparted to me, he not only could see ripples of influence, he could see ripples of problems. And he had to be able to look at Peter and go, oh, really Peter? But he not only loved him, He continued to choose him and use him. But I can just allow my heart to get excited when I think about the circles and the ripples of influence that if we would take Matthew 5, 17 through 20 and say, Jesus, this is an impossible task that you're giving. That we've got to be better than the most perfect lawgiver and keeper To enter the kingdom of heaven? I think what he's trying to say is, the only one capable of doing that is Jesus himself. And as he is our entrance into heaven, he's also our key to living in righteousness. I challenge you tonight, no matter if you're 6 or 86, somebody needs more than a blueprint They need a model of what it means to live for Jesus. And I believe he wants to use you and he wants to use me. Heavenly Father, thank you for my friends and their great attention to your word tonight. As I often ask, would you allow your truth, your scripture, your words to elevate to the highest place in our mind tonight? May they not only take root, but may they spread like wildfire in our hearts. Lord, would you give us a hunger and thirst for your righteousness out of your word tonight? Jesus, would you remind us that this biblical balance, staying in line, walking with you, You want to call us out of cheap grace, out of a legalistic understanding of holiness, but you want us to be in righteous step with you. Thank you, Jesus. 
that we don't just have a blueprint anymore. As wonderful as that is, we have a model. We have a comforter, a shepherd, a savior in you. It's in your name, Jesus. We not only pray these things, it's in your name that we choose to live these principles out. Amen and amen.